for the ones that made you work for it. The ones that you knew would do whatever they had to do to protect their daughter. You had respect and a healthy fear. It could be a bit frustrating at times when you felt like they were being a little over the top. Like you haven't really done anything or you haven't really given them a reason not to trust you. You could get frustrated by that. But that all changed when I became a dad. I realized that good dads protect their daughters and that they do whatever they have to do to take care of them, no matter how nice the boy seems. And we've all heard stories of dads going to great lengths to protect their daughters, like answering the door with a shotgun in hand or inviting the young man in while he's cleaning the guns in the living room, uh, living room floor empty graves that have been dug in the backyard or even filling out applications before the first date. Matter of fact, uh, many of you were here yesterday for the wedding of Cass and Rebecca. Uh, I did their premarital counseling and Cass told me that he actually had to fill out an application. I think it was Bill that made him do it before he could take Rebecca out on a date. I'm for it. I remember the very first moment that I looked into the face of my baby girl, I was in love. And the first thought that came to my mind is I'm going to have to protect her from a bunch of idiots. So first thing I thought, I just thought, Oh God, you know, I I read stories this past week of dads who gave their lives, even protecting their daughters. One story I read was of a, a father in Miami who sprung to action when two armed intruders came into his home and went for the door of his 11-year-old daughter. Unarmed, he fought both men to the death. He gave his life. Because good dads protect their daughters, right? Any father who's worth anything not only protects her person, but he protects her purity. He understands that her innocence is precious and that though it cannot last forever, while he has the opportunity, he is going to guard it with everything that he has within him. And he hopes that when that girl becomes a young woman, that he will have the opportunity to present her to a godly man as a pure bride. Any good father would hope for this. And the Apostle Paul was no different. Only the child that he's fighting to protect in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 isn't a biological child, it's the church. See, he first preached the gospel to the Corinthians. He was the one that helped, with God's help, establish the church in Corinth. And he felt, as he says, a divine jealousy toward them. That's because he saw these people as his spiritual children. Saw himself as a spiritual father. And the Apostle Paul, he's now here in 2 Corinthians writing actually his fourth letter that we know of to the church in the city of Corinth. And as I, as I said, he'd been the first one to bring the gospel to them and establish the church there. But quite frankly, it had been a difficult church to work with, if you know much about the Corinthians. There was quite a bit of rebellion against him, though he had been the very first one to come and preach the gospel to them. The church had been like a rebellious daughter, but as any good father, he loved her nonetheless. Now, Paul 
has enemies here in this city of Corinth. They were self-proclaimed apostles who preached a different message than Paul. And as we see in other places in the New Testament, there were people uh, that preached out of envy toward Paul. They preached uh, another gospel to inflict pain in Paul's life. There were people that would literally follow Paul around and try to undo everything he did because they hated him that much. They wanted to kill him. And they came pretty close several times. Now, in 2 Corinthians, these opponents are not clearly identified. But many scholars believe that in Corinth, there were various groups and factions that were teaching false doctrine and lies. Many of them for personal gain, just as some people still do today. They were telling people what they wanted to hear in order to gather a crowd, to gather influence, and ultimately, what, get money and power, right? That's what it's always about in the end. And this false gospel had taken hold of the lives of many of the Corinthians. And Paul is sincerely afraid that they are going to be led away from a pure devotion to Christ. And it's really worse than just being led astray. The verb there in the Greek that is translated led astray literally means to seduce, to ruin, or to destroy. And the danger is that the people in this church are in danger of being completely deceived and led into spiritual ruin, just like Adam and Eve were in the garden. So Paul, what is he doing? He's fighting for the church. He's fighting for her like a father would for his daughter. He's resorted to desperate measures even here to get them to listen to him. He's pleading with them that he might preserve their purity. And we know that these are desperate measures because Paul begins to do something here. And we'll see in just a few minutes that he never does. He himself says, this is foolish. I look stupid doing this, but I'm willing to do it if you will listen to me. He begins to brag on himself. He begins to boast in his credentials. And like I said, he's doing this because he feels like he has to do whatever he has to do to get their attention. Because see, Corinthians were notorious for putting a lot of stock in a person's credentials and in their charisma. You see, Corinth was uh, a multicultural crossroads of Paul's day. I mean, there were all kinds of people from all over the, the world that were going through this place. And so it was not uncommon for people to come through Corinth with a new teaching, all types of smooth uh, tongued orators and charlatans and, and hucksters and tricksters were coming through and they would always have something new or they'd have a, a new twist to something that was old. So it wasn't uncommon for people to come through here and have a new doctrine or a new philosophy. And of course, these teachers that would come through in order to get a crowd, they would always boast about their credentials and about their recommendations in order to impress weak-minded people and gain an audience. You see, Paul had plenty of credentials. Really, he had better credentials than anybody else that was there preaching. But he wasn't the greatest speaker, nor did he ever brag about his credentials. And with all the persecution that Paul was enduring in his life, his enemies, these people who are preaching a false gospel, they're saying that, guys, there's no way that this Paul who come to you and preach this gospel can really be an apostle of Christ. Look how much he suffers Look at everything he goes through. Everywhere he goes, people beat him and stone him. And, 
and, and all of these bad things that happen to him. He's always locked up in prison. There's no way that anybody who is truly chosen by God could suffer as much as this one you call Paul. And so they would use this against him and say that he wasn't a genuine apostle of Jesus Christ. And so that's what Paul is facing. Paul has come into uh, Corinth and he has, with God's help, established this church. Now he is on the verge of seeing them all go astray, all be led astray into spiritual ruin. And he is desperately fighting like a father for his daughter to preserve their purity. And that's where we find him in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And we're going to read there. Look with me. I'm going to read out of the New Living Translation because I like the way that it reads. And if you have uh, your Bible on the Bible app, you can uh, tap over and change it to NLT. He says there, I hope that you will put up with a little more of my foolishness. Please bear with me, for I'm jealous for you with the jealousy of God himself. I promised you as a pure bride to one husband, Christ. But I fear that somehow your pure and undivided devotion to Christ will be corrupted, just as Eve was deceived by the cunning ways of the serpent. You happily put up with whatever anyone tells you, even if they preach a different Jesus than the one we preach, or a different kind of spirit than the one that you received, or a different kind of gospel than the one that you believed. But I don't consider myself inferior in any way to these quote-unquote super apostles who teach such things. I may be unskilled as a speaker, but I am not lacking in knowledge. We have made this clear to you in every possible way. Was I wrong when I humbled myself and honored you by preaching God's good news to you without expecting anything in return? I robbed other churches by accepting their contributions so that I could serve you at no cost. And when I was with you and didn't have enough to live on, I did not become a financial burden to anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia brought me all that I needed. I have never been a burden to you, and I never will be. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, no one in all of Greece will ever stop me from boasting about this. Why? Because I don't love you? God knows that I do. But I will continue doing what I've always done. And this will undercut those who are looking for an opportunity to boast that their work is just like ours. These people are false apostles. They are deceitful workers who disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. But I'm not surprised. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no wonder that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. In the end, they will get the punishment that their wicked deeds deserve. So Paul's in a fight here. And he is desperately trying to show the people of this church that they're being led astray. Just like a dad who's trying to convince his daughter that that heartthrob hunk on the front porch is really not everybody, is really not the guy that she thinks he is. Although she thinks he can do no wrong, the dad can see right through it and he knows that he's a self-absorbed jerk who's going to break her heart. Dads, you know what I'm talking about. He can see it, but they can't. And that's exactly what's going on here. Paul can see what's going on. The church can't. And he's going to do everything he can short of losing her to protect her. And Paul's not the only minister that does this. It didn't just happen back then. As a matter of fact, it's still going on right now. Today, it happens right here in our church. The reason that our pastor 
and our pastoral staff lead you the way we do is because we want to present you to Christ as a pure bride. We sort of see you as our daughter and all the stuff out there that could deceive you and lead you down the wrong path like a teenage boy standing on the porch. But you know what, church? You're already promised to someone else. You're engaged to Jesus. And it's our job to fight off illegitimate suitors. So we're going to stand on the porch with the shotgun in hand and do whatever it takes. You know, this was actually the custom in ancient Israel. In ancient Israel, in the Old Testament times, when a woman became engaged to a man, it was the dad's job, his responsibility to present her to that man on their wedding day as a pure bride. And that's what Paul is doing in Corinth. And that's what we are trying to do for you. That's why our pastor gets up here and preaches like he does. And I'm so thankful that we have a pastor who is willing to be politically incorrect, to preach the hard truth, to teach us the entire word of God, because he's more concerned with this church being presented to Jesus as a pure bride than getting with the times. Amen. Because if you don't know it, there is a great deception in our land. This deception has infiltrated many churches and Satan and his influence have marched into the church as an angel of light. And this deception, guys, has many, sometimes almost all of the elements of truth, but it never has all the truth. There will always be a variance somewhere. But some of these deceptions that have come into the to the church, they're almost true, but they're not true. And and I'll be honest, I have felt the power of the deception of this day in my life. I know many men and women of God who I've talked to that serve the church as ministers that have been tempted by this deception. And this deception is the call to compromise. That's what it is. It is the call to compromise. It is the urge to become politically correct. It is the challenge to rethink scripture and either change it or leave some of it behind altogether. And the pull and and the, the, the positive in that that some people find is, is that it just becomes easier. Doesn't it? It just becomes easier And not so much of a fight to serve God and to lead his church when you'll just get with the times. When you'll let this issue slide and just go with the flow, it becomes a lot easier. But we're not going to do it. You see, Satan is deceptive. He's more deceptive than we realize. His deceptions are so subtle. Satan is no dummy. He never does anything that can be easily traced back to him. He doesn't want to take recognition for what he does. He would rather give you a lie, watch it grab hold of you, get down, put roots deep down in you, destroy you, and, and, he, and he would be fine with sitting back in the, in the shadows and just watching you destroy yourself. That's how he works. He takes our weaknesses and he exploits them. And then we, once we've bought the lie, we mingle our sinfulness and the lie with the truth to create some mutated Frankenstein version of the truth, which is not the truth at all. 
I believe there are many churches and well-intentioned people in those churches that have been deceived. They've sold out the spirit of God for systems and entertainment. Some churches are preaching something besides the gospel that has been delivered to the saints once and for all. Let me tell you something. Anytime Jesus is not the center of what's happening in a church, something's not right. Anytime the scriptures are altered or tossed out, there is a problem. If churches are more concerned with beating up sinners instead of loving them and seeing them be saved, there's a problem. At the same time, if the church isn't willing to tell people plainly that sin is sin and Jesus is the only hope for them, there's also a problem. Churches that are more concerned with entertainment than an experience with God have a problem. There's nothing wrong with having an excellent facility. There's nothing wrong with having excellent technology and excellent preparation. But when it becomes more important and we spend more time focused on those things than we do in the word and in prayer, we have a problem. And many of you, young people, you are the ones who have yet a ways to go. You are the ones who are still going to have to go out into this world and, and find yourself and find your faith for yourself as you kind of wade through the murky waters of a postmodern culture. Because you are going to be given so many different versions of Jesus, so many different versions of the gospel, so many uh, changes that can be made. There are going to be people that tell you that this issue is not important anymore. Or the word of God is not the only authority anymore. Jesus is not really the only way anymore. You're going to be told all these things. And you still yet have to come through it. And decide and choose Jesus for yourself. It's difficult. But with the power of the Holy Spirit, you can do it. I want to talk to you just for a few minutes about some deceptions. None of which are new that I see among so-called Christians and in some churches. Probably one of the biggest ones is universalism. We all, pretty much all of us know what it is. It's the, the teaching that all religious paths get you to God. That truth is really relative. And that if you are well-intentioned and well-meaning, that it's going to get you to heaven. And my question for those people is then, why did Jesus have to die? For what reason did Jesus die if there were any other way to get to heaven? Oh, this is not popular at all. This is one that will make people pull their hair out. They'll get spitting mad, as my grandma would like to say. They just can't see how we're so, how we could be so arrogant and so prideful and so blind to think that there's just one way to heaven. How could you be so stupid to think that Jesus is the only way to heaven? And when they begin to put that pressure on you like that, and then when you begin to meet people of other faiths and people from around the world who treat you kindly, who are faithful to their particular religious system, you can begin to question, Jesus, are you really the only way? It can be difficult when you're outside the walls of this house. You're out there in the world's home court. 
the pressure can be difficult. And I see this coming into the church. I've seen it make steady inroads into the church. There are many denominations, uh, as we know them, that have pretty much taken this hook, line, and sinker. I mean, there are people standing behind pulpits and lecterns today that call themselves pastors and priests that do not believe that Jesus is the only way. They've been deceived. And even in churches like ours, there are believers who allow the voices of the world that teach this relativism. They let it to infect. They let it infect their mind. And then they bring it into the church as a sort of Trojan horse. They bring, they bring that belief in where it gets released. Most of the time it's subtle, a comment here, a doubt cast there. But this is something that we're dealing with in the church of America. And if you get outside of your small little circle, your small little world, you will deal with this. But Jesus said that he was the only way. The church didn't say it. The head of the church said it. Jesus said that he was the way, the truth, and the life. And that nobody comes to the Father except by him. There can't be more than one truth, church. That just defies logic. It just it can't be. Truth is exclusive. It excludes all other things. That's what it does. Truth is truth. Another deception that's coming to the church is that there will not be any real punishment for sin in eternity. Those people who don't accept Christ won't really be separated from the presence of God into what Jesus called Gehenna, to which we translate hell. And if there's not a punishment for sin, again, what in the world did Jesus die for? What was he saving us from if there is no punishment for sin? If the lost are not going to be separated from God, cast into hell, into the lake of fire, then for what reason did Jesus die? What was he saving us from? This is another deception because it's not popular to believe that someone might suffer for their sin. Another one that's been around for a long time is the prosperity gospel. We see we see that it was even going on in Paul's day. Essentially, these people were scholars believe that these uh, false teachers were probably telling these Corinthians like, look, you know, if God is really for you, then, you know, things are going to go well for you. You're not going to suffer like Paul. So the prosperity gospel has been going around for a long time. It basically just says that. God is equally concerned with making you healthy and wealthy as he is in saving you. But we know when we look at the word of God that that is not the truth. The word of God does not teach that. Jesus is ultimately concerned with saving your soul. And then after that, yeah, God wants good things for us. He does. But sometimes the means to the good things that he has for us is through a trial. It's through a struggle. Another one, another deception is the denial of the word of God as the authority for our faith. People today in many churches believe that certain cultural issues which the Bible labels as sin are okay because of widespread cultural acceptance. That somehow cultural acceptance outweighs the authority of the word of God. Because enough people are okay with it now, and even some churches are okay with it now, that must mean that somehow God missed that one. So we can, we can kind of tweak that to our liking. You see it all the time. 
interpreting Scripture in a way that is clearly incorrect to appease the sinful appetites of men and believing that if you're well-meaning and sincere, God is okay with it. I don't have to call out any particular sin. It's not just one sin. It's, it's, it's a multitude of sins. And then another deception that I see that's very, very subtle and hard to pin down is just the overall coldness and lack of spiritual vitality and reverence for God. Being so much like the world. Churches being so much like the world. I think if I had to pick a particular word to describe it, I think it's idolatry. I think that's what it is. And idolatry is so subtle, isn't it? See, idolatry, if you don't know what that is, is it's just simply loving something else more than you love God. Putting something else before God. And in the Old Testament, they had physical idols. You know, they would erect um, statues and, and stone things and wooden things, and, the, and they would worship these things. But today it's not that. Today it could be anything from a relationship to technology, to your job, to money, to anything. Anything can be an idol in your life. Anything can become your God. And God said, I will have no other gods before me. Idolatry, worldliness that has slipped into the church. We see idols of entertainment and status and money and sports, sex. And get this. I think some people even idolize their church over God. I think some people idolize the way their church has church over God. I know that's very, I know that sounds maybe even crazy to you, but I've seen people so excited about what their church is doing lately, but I don't hear them talk much about God. And if I think that if we are so wrapped up with what we're doing in our church, like what the building looks like and what type of ministry we're going to be starting and oh, we got really cool new t-shirts and we have an app and we have a great new website None of which is bad inherently, but if if we're so wrapped up in our church and the style of our church and we don't even have a relationship with God, we're not even reading his word. We're not praying. We're not walking in the spirit. We're not making disciples. If we're not doing those things, there could be a problem. God is the reason we come here. God is the reason this building is standing. Don't put ministry before God. Don't put your church before God. This building is not the church. You are the church. We are the church. And if this building was gone next week, we could all go sit down in a field under an oak tree and have church. And the same spirit would be there. And I thank God for everything we have. I thank God for the amazing leadership of our pastor and our deacons and everybody that worked so diligently and hard to, to bring about what we have. But I pray that we stay focused on God and use it as the tool to reach our community. Not so wrapped up or prideful that we're Trinity Fellowship. We have the best worship in Northwest Arkansas, which we do. But we're not prideful about it. We don't place it as an idol in our life. You know, I I just think... 
about stories that I hear from my mom and my grandparents about how people just used to be so hungry for God. And I just don't see it even my, in my own life. I don't see it oftentimes. Now, the Holy Spirit has been really moving in our church, and I'm thankful for it. But I think that we have become so distracted in this day and time that the idol of distraction, the idol of busyness has gotten in the way of a church that is truly in pursuit of God. And I'm guilty of it. You know, I want you to know that we as, as a pastoral team, we're here to teach you truth and to love you. And because we love you, we're going to tell you the truth. We're, we're here to protect you and walk with you hand in hand. But you know what? We need help too. And please don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to make us seem like we're perfect because we're the protectors, but God has called us. God has given us the responsibility to protect you, all of us. And, and Pastor D being the, the leader of all of that, the main protector, if you want to say. But we want to one day in eternity be able to metaphorically walk you down that aisle and put your hand in the hand of Jesus, knowing that you stay pure. We're committed to preaching the only gospel that exists because there is only one. We're going to pray for you, fight for you, work to equip you because the Bible teaches us to do that. So I ask you in return, please lift us up in prayer. We need you to support us, love us, pray for us, believe in us. Remember that we're only human. And that's going to help us in turn have the energy and the passion to equip you and tell the enemy, keep your hands off my daughter. Keep your hands off my daughter. Just like in Corinth, many deceivers are going to pass through your lives, guys. The enemy is always at work. So we have to be diligent. We have to pay close attention to what we hear and what we see and what we let into our life. And I would encourage you to be on your guard in these deceitful days. Listen closely to the word that you're being taught from this pulpit. And as always, test it against the word of God, test it against the copy that you have in your hand. But pay close attention to what the leaders God has given you here are teaching you. Because we are trying to protect you. Beware of those things which seem good, but stray from the truth. Just as Paul says, Satan masquerades as an angel of light. We really are living in such a deceitful time. The church is under attack in this land. And we need to, we need to band together. Those who've been called to serve the church and the church, all of us as one, and fight for the purity of the body of Christ. We need to just plain and simple. We need to have revival. We need to get hungry for God again. Hungry enough that we'll turn away from the things of the world. We'll turn away from media. We'll turn away from our phones and our iPads and everything else. And that we will carve out a space in our lives. That the presence of God can just come in and, and make the difference. Because let me tell you something. In closing. 
I believe it more now than I ever have before. The only thing that's going to make a real difference in our world is the power of the Holy Spirit working through us. There's nothing else. There's nothing else, guys. I don't care how nice your building is, how great the worship is, how great the technology is. I don't care about any of that. I'm thankful for it. But in the end, it will not save a single soul. It will not change your heart. It will not set you free from the addictions and the sin that has its claws dug so deeply inside of you. It will not heal your diseases. It will not encourage you in the middle of the night. It will not do any of those things. Only the Spirit of God will do those things. Only. And the thing about God is that He's always waiting to get near to us. He can't wait to get near to us. He's dying to get near to us. The Bible tells us, the book of James, if you draw near to God, He'll draw near to you. It's that simple. So I'm telling the enemy this morning, keep your hands off my daughter. She's not yours. And I came here today to tell you that you have a pastor and you have a pastoral staff that loves you enough that we are going to continue to tell you the truth. We're going to stick to the word. We're not going to get with the times. We're with the times. (laughs) We're in God's time. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me today? I'm going to ask our prayer team to join me down at the front this morning. Getting ready to wrap this service up. But as always, we want to make time and and a space and an opportunity to respond to the word. And if you're here this morning and you need to be saved, you need Jesus. Then I want you to step out from where you are and just come down and find one of these people to pray with. I don't know everybody here. I don't know where you stand with God. But if you cannot think of a time in your life when you ever surrendered your life to God, I'm not talking about where you mentally accepted his existence and you said, yes, I believe. The Bible says even the demons believe that God exists and they shudder with fear. I'm not talking about just believing. I'm talking about if you cannot point to a place in your life when you said, I'm letting go, Jesus. I'm trusting in what you did for me on the cross to cover my sins. If you've never done that, you need to be saved. I'm just asking you just to step out from right where you are right now. Come down and find one of these people and they will pray with you and and help you. But ultimately, it's up to you. But when you come down here and you pray a true prayer of faith, surrendering, committing to following Jesus from here on out, you will be saved. Amen. Is there anybody here today brave enough to step out and say, that's me. I'm ready. I'm ready to do that.